guys, it's Tana. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Oddity Podity. Just like a lot of Americans, I can trace some of my ancestors back to the country of Ireland. But even if your roots don't extend to the Emerald Isle, never fear. Because each year on March 17th, we all get to drink green beer and we're all a little Irish. Or maybe you should fear. Because paranormal activity in Ireland isn't limited to leprechauns and four-leaf clovers. Some of the most terrifying creatures we fear come from that beautiful land, specifically vampires. In fact, the inspiration for one of the world's most famous vampire tales is believed to have come from a harrowing incident that occurred in ancient Ireland. So if you think that you have the luck of the Irish, keep listening. Because if these Irish vampires ever escape from their tombs, you're going to need it. country that's full of magic and the supernatural, and it always has been. In the early 1700s, the Irish began immigrating to America in droves, and they brought that magic with them, helping to create and shape our country. Some of the most celebrated and influential Americans have Irish roots. Probably the most famous of those is the Kennedy clan. If you listen to the episode on the curse of the Kennedys, then you know that even they could not escape the effects of a supernatural creature that their patriarch had a run-in with before he set sail for the States. Everyone knows what happened to the Clan Kennedy after that. But have you ever heard of the Clan O'Kane? There's a town called O'Kane close to where I grew up, though it's spelled differently being O-apostrophe-K-E-A-N as opposed to O-apostrophe-K-A-N-E. It was likely settled by a member of the same clan. You'll often find those slight variations in spelling when delving into the names of Scottish and Irish clans, and this is probably because most people couldn't read or write back then. So when it came to writing a name or spelling it, they're mostly just winging it, just like I did in high school. But lucky for you, this story isn't about me in high school, or this would be a very different podcast. No, this is a podcast about the supernatural. And while Ireland is known to be the land of fairies, giants, banshees, and woodland spirits, it's also the land of vampires. Yeah, I know we like to all give credit to France for that one, but there's loads of vampire lore in Ireland as well. And one of the oldest vampire origin stories involves the Clan O'Kane. I first ran across this story on IrelandBeforeYouDie.com, but it's been reiterated, studied, deconstructed, reconstructed, and repeated in various texts that I'll link in the show notes. If you're a fan of Stephen King, and y'all all know that I am, then you're familiar with a spooky little New England town called Derry. But there's a place in Ireland that's also called Derry. And way back when, something happened there that's believed to inspire the story Dracula. Derry is in Northern Ireland, and it's a very, very, very old town. In 1613, they started calling it Londonderry, and today there are about 90,000 people living there, making it the second largest city in Northern Ireland and the fifth largest in the country. But the time that we're talking about was well before 1613, before it was called Derry, and probably before it had a name at all. Despite the growth of the city today, you can still find a mound of earth in the middle of a field that's been there for centuries. In the middle of this mound is a large heavy stone flanked by two smaller stones, all of which rest beneath a hawthorn tree. Once upon a time, there were several of those large heavy stones, but over time they were removed, one by one, by farmers who needed them to build things. 
Luckily, those farmers knew better than to remove all the stones because of what lie beneath. Some call this monument the giant's grave, but those who know its true origins call it Awatah's tomb. As an aside, the name is spelled A-B-H-A-R-T-A-C-H, so it looks like it's pronounced Abertach, but I consulted the Google machine and it told me it was Awatah. My sincere apologies to the Irish for my southern butchering of it. I will try to do the story justice anyway. During the 5th and 6th centuries, Northern Ireland was a vast land ruled by tribal warlords and chieftains. Think Braveheart. If you're strong and crazy enough to fight to the death, you too could become king of your own little plot of land until someone kicked your butt and killed you. That's just how it was back then. People fought and killed each other for power and ruled until they were fought and killed as well. Everyone else were followers who were just trying to survive. The Irish countryside is sprinkled with lumps and bumps and hills that were once forts, hovels, and low walls that marked these tribal territory lines. Back in those days, one of the most fearsome chieftains in all the land was a dude named Awata. The other tribes were terrified of him. Not so much because he was physically threatening, though. He was no stone-cold Steve Austin or even the ultimate warrior. In fact, historical descriptions of him make it clear that he suffered from birth defects and was possibly born with dwarfism, so it wasn't getting their butts kicked that made the other warlords fear him. What scared them was the fact that Awata was an extremely evil, extremely powerful wizard. As is often the case with evil people, Awata was not to be trusted, and in turn, he trusted no one else. He was very jealous and suspicious, which made him a terrible husband as well. Even though his wife was probably as scared of him as everyone else was, he still became convinced that she was cheating on him for some reason. Ladies, when your man acts like this, it's usually because he's cheating on you, but I digress. Awatah believed that his wife was having an affair, but he wanted proof, so he hatched a plan to catch her with her side piece. In the dead of night, long after everyone else was asleep, he climbed out of the window of his bedroom and dropped onto the ledge below. Silently as a cat, he crept along the roof until he saw the window of his wife's bedroom. His intention was to dip inside and catch her with her lover, but when he tried to do this, he slipped and fell off the roof to his death. The next morning, the villagers found his body. Even though he wasn't the most loved ruler, he was still a king, and his followers buried him with that respect. As was customary for royalty, Awatah was buried standing upright. After the funeral service, everyone went back to their homes to mourn, But the next day, terror descended on the village when Awatah marched up to the town gates, fresh from his grave. The zombie king opened his mouth, and in a voice rattling with gravel and dirt, he commanded the villagers to slit their wrists and catch the blood in a bowl for him to drink. Now, the townsfolk were scared out of their minds, and not knowing what else to do, they obeyed, pulling out their knives and bleeding themselves to feed their dead ruler. With this, Awatah returned to his grave to rest, but the nightmare didn't end for his followers, because the very next day, he returned and demanded blood from his subjects again, and again they complied, and the dead king left them alone, but only for one day. The next morning, he stormed into the village again, calling out for blood. Believing that Awatah had returned from the dead through the power of his wizardry, his followers were too terrified to refuse him, and so they kept allowing him to drink their blood. But after a while, the villagers decided that something had to be done about their undead king. They simply could not continue to drain themselves of blood to sustain his unnatural life any longer. But instead of attempting to put an end to Awatah themselves and risking the consequences if they failed, 
they pooled their funds and paid another tribe chieftain to do it for them. This chieftain was named Kahan, and according to O'NeillClans.com, he was the forebearer for the clan O'Kane. So if any of you is from the family of O'Kane, this story's for you. Anyway, Kahan was the man for the job. The next time Awata showed up demanding blood, Kahan killed him outright. And afterwards, he paid the slain king proper respect and buried him again, standing upright as required by a station. However, the next day, Awata rose again, and he returned to the village and demanded a bowl of blood to drink. The terrified villagers ran to Kahan, begging him to put the undead king down once more. And once more, Kahan did it, and he buried him too, upright again. But the next day, Awata rose again, and he crept into the village in search of blood. If all of this is sounding familiar to you, you're not alone. Many believe that this Middle Ages horror story was a precursor to the most famous of vampire tales, Dracula. Back then, Irish blood feuds, or bad blood, was called Drac Ola. And of course, the author of Dracula, Bram Stoker, was from Ireland. So if Awatah was Dracula, then Cahan was about to become Van Helsing. He was determined to kill the monster a third and final time, but first he needed to consult an expert because he had no idea how to put the thing down for good. So he went to Gortna Morag Forest, where the houses of holy men stood in a long row that ended in a well, which was filled with holy water. Today, you can still see where these homes once stood, and the locals call it the Saint's Track. Here is where Cahan sought out a holy man named John, who was not a pagan, but instead a Christian. And he was credited with founding the new religion in the area. So he was kind of like the granddaddy of Christianity there, so to speak. Aside from his home, relics of St. John can still be found in the area, including his footprint on a stone and his name, which is etched in landmarks in the surrounding area up to several miles away. Cahan told St. John what had transpired in the village and how Awata kept coming back day after day to drink blood. St. John thought on it long and hard, and then he told Cahan that even though Awata's death had been accidental, the king had become one of the undead because uh, he'd been messing around with the dark arts in life. Doing this made his flesh weak and vulnerable to demonic possession after his own spirit left its body. So even though Awatah sucked, it really wasn't him terrorizing the village. Rather, it was whatever dark force had inhabited his body after he died. Unfortunately, this meant that Awatah could not be killed again as he was technically already dead. Yeah, he could temporarily stop the body from rising by striking it down and burying it, but the evil force that had taken over the vessel would simply continue to stitch the late king's body back together again and drag it out of the grave in search of the life-giving blood necessary to sustain it. Sure, the villagers could just stop giving the zombie king their blood, but if they did that, he would surely return and take it by force, which was a much more terrifying option. Kahan agreed, and so St. John laid out the only option, to imprison Awata's body and ensure that it could not rise again to drink blood. And then he gave Kahan instructions on how to do this. The first thing Kahan needed to do was to make a sword out of yew wood. For reasons that aren't entirely clear, yew trees have always been associated with churches. Or, should I say, churches have associated themselves with yew trees. Hundreds of churchyards in Europe have yew trees that are older than the actual churches, as though the buildings were erected there specifically to be close to those special trees. The people of that time believed that yew trees could purify the dead, and they often planted them on top of the graves of plague victims. 
According to woodlandtrust.org, yew trees were not only symbols of immortality, but also signified impending doom. Because of this, yew branches were carried both on Sundays to celebrate worship and also at funerals to mourn. All this is especially interesting because nearly every part of a yew tree is poisonous. So Cahan was to use this poisonous wooden sword to slay Awatah. Essentially, it was like that wooden stake to the heart that we all know can kill a vampire. After this was done, St. John instructed Cahan to bury Awatah's body upside down in the earth instead of right side up. Finally, thorns and ash twigs must then be sprinkled around the grave and a heavy stone placed directly on top of him. St. John warned that if that stone was ever removed, Awatah would once again be free to walk the earth and drink blood. But Cahan did as instructed. He made the yew wood sword, ran Awatah through with it, buried him upside down, and sprinkled thorns and ash twigs all over the grave. Then he piled so many stones on top of the undead king that the monument could be seen for miles around. No one dared remove any of these stones, as word got around what lie beneath. Eventually, a hawthorn tree grew up from between the rocks, having sprouted from the thorns that Cahan had sprinkled all over the ground. In Celtic mythology, the hawthorn tree is a magical sacred tree that symbolizes love and protection, so this was fitting. All was fine for a while, and Awatah stayed locked in his tomb beneath the ground. But as centuries passed, people forgot about the evil that lurked restlessly under those rocks. There were farmers who needed the stones to build their houses and fences, and over time, many of them were removed by unwitting Irishmen. Still, there were those who came from the deep-set bloodlines of the ancient Irish clans who knew about Awatah's grave and considered the field to be spoiled land. And they stayed clear of the field but kept a wary eye on it. But in 1997, an attempt at progress was made, and a company set out to clear it. Locals tried to warn them not to remove the last of the stones or the hawthorn tree, but the company didn't listen. Three times, a brand new chainsaw was used to cut down that hawthorn tree, and three times, the chainsaw stopped working before it could touch bark. So the workers then wrapped a steel chain around the largest stone and tried to move it instead. Instead of wrenching the stone out of the earth, the chain snapped and severely cut the hand of one of the workmen. The guy lost a lot of blood, which soaked into Awatah's grave and was seen as a really bad omen. And with this, the attempt to disturb the resting place of a vampire was halted, and he since lay undisturbed. In 1880, historian Patrick Weston Joyce recounted the story of Awatah in his book, A History of Ireland. Seventeen years later, a Dublin civil servant named Brom Stoker published the novel Dracula. It's believed that Stoker read Joyce's work and based his famous tale on the legend of Awatah. While Awatah might be considered the granddaddy of the vampires in Ireland, he certainly isn't alone, nor is his the only vampire grave that you can find in the country. According to an article by Anna Reagan published on irishcentral.com, Another famous vampire met a similar fate in an area that's now called Waterford. But way back before it was named Waterford, there lived an Irish beauty who turned every head with her long, silky black hair, pale skin, and striking green eyes. Of course, she had many suitors, but her heart belonged to a simple farmhand. I pictured this couple like Buttercup and Wesley in The Princess Bride. And like in The Princess Bride, there was an evil Prince Humperdinck hanging around causing trouble for the lovebirds. Only in this case, Buttercup's dad was pushing for her to marry Humperdinck. 
In fact, he was insisting on it, mostly because Prince Humperdinck was one of those clan chieftains we were just talking about, so he came with wealth and power. In exchange for his beautiful daughter's hand in marriage, her father would be awarded land and money not only for himself but also for his sons, so of course, this marriage was going to happen. No matter how the poor girl begged, her father would not relent and allow her to marry the farmhand she was in love with. Her marriage to the chieftain was arranged, and a date for the wedding was set. As the story goes, the wedding day went off without a hitch, despite Buttercup's broken heart. She was a vision to behold, dressed in crimson and gold, and the wedding guests celebrated throughout the night and into the wee hours of the morning. However, Buttercup's game face hid her true feelings. Underneath it all, she vowed revenge on her father, brothers, and the man who'd caused it all, Chieftain Prince Humperdinck. As it would turn out, that dismal wedding day would be the best day of the marriage. The chieftain proved to be abusive and controlling. He basically locked Buttercup away from the world, taking her out of her prison only long enough to have his way with her once in a while. I imagine very briefly before locking her away again. He took special pleasure in knowing that he owned her and that the farmhand she loved would never see her again. This seemed to be one of his motivations for marrying her in the first place, to cause pain and heartbreak to the lovers. He was physically and psychologically a cruel man. After a while of this, Buttercup just gave up on life. She stopped eating and drinking, and she sat locked away in her room, taken out only occasionally for her husband's entertainment, and then put away again like a toy kept in a closet. Barely a month after she'd been forced into a loveless marriage, she wasted away to nothing and died. Humperdinck barely even noticed. He did take one last opportunity to insult her by ordering her to be buried in her wedding dress. A bright red gown trimmed in gold, with golden bracelets encircling her wrists. But he didn't even wait until her funeral was over to take another wife. Her family didn't care either. They were too busy enjoying the wealth that Chieftain Humperdinck had showered them with in exchange for her life. The only person who cared that she was gone was the farmhand who'd been the love of her life. He visited the grave every single day, telling her how much he still loved her and always would. He also prayed over her grave, begging for her to return. Now, you might think that all that praying is what caused Buttercup to rise up from the grave, but you'd be wrong about that. What drove her to rise again was the thirst for revenge. The farmhand continued to pray daily, and exactly one year later, on the first anniversary of her death, he got his wish. Only, he didn't get exactly what he'd hoped for. In the dead of night, Buttercup clawed her way out of the ground and headed straight for her father's home. Once there, she crept into his room and touched her lips to his as he lay sleeping. This was not a kiss of love, though. It was a kiss of death, as it sucked the life right out of him. Next, she paid a visit to Chieftain Humperdinck. She found him not asleep, but rather engaged in an orgy with a mountain of women. He didn't even notice when his dead bride shambled into the room. Didn't even recognize her as she crawled into his bed and joined the other women in kissing his face and ears. Eventually, one of the women noticed, though, and she began to scream when Buttercup sank her teeth into Humperdinck's neck. With this, Buttercup's bloodlust was stoked, and she drained every last drop of blood from Humperdinck as the women shrieked and fled in terror. Now, Buttercup had a taste for it. She hunted down her greedy brothers and drained their blood as well. The life force of her victims coursing through her veins, Buttercup's beauty and vitality was restored. Her wasted corpse bloomed with life, but it was only surface deep. 
Inside, she had no soul, and that was an emptiness that could not be filled, though she tried mightily to. Buttercup used her beauty to lure lusty young men from the safety of the village and into the woods where she could suck the life from them. Night after night, she drank the blood of men, but it was never enough. The only man who was spared was the farmhand, the very man who'd prayed her back from the grave. Luckily for him, Buttercup had completely forgotten all about him and her quest for blood and revenge. When he learned that it was his love who was terrorizing the countryside and murdering every man in sight, he fled and hid. However, everyone in the village had seen him praying daily over Buttercup's grave for a whole year, so they reckoned that he was a sorcerer who'd raised her from the dead through black magic, and with that, they hunted the poor guy down and burned him at the stake. After they burned his remains, they hunted down Buttercup. And just like Gahan had done it with Awatah, they put a stake through her heart and buried her deep in the ground under a small mountain of heavy rocks. And like Awatah, her grave remains as well. But above hers grows a tree they call Strongbow. Every year on the night before the anniversary of her death, the locals visited her final resting spot and placed a few extra stones on top of her grave just to make sure that she never rose again. However, they did not call her Buttercup. They called her Diardu, which means red thirst or red bloodsucker. They still call her that to this day. So if you set out in search of her grave, be sure to call her that and not Buttercup. Guys, I hope this is as much fun for you as it was for me. I, for one, am feeling very grateful that my ancestors survived the horrors of ancient Irish countryside so that I didn't have to. The place sounds like it was wild and with scary stuff, not to mention all the undead that sound like they own the place at night. I hope that you'll join me again next week, same time, same place, for a little more Irish history and a lot more Irish haunt. We'll see you then.